one in eight people in the world is an Indian under the age of 30. Ultimately, if the people of Indian Kashmir decide that they do not want to be a part of India, then all bets are off in terms of what Pakistan will do as well. All political parties will try to indulge in some sort of spinning and some sort of fake news. While Modi and the BJP's politics are hyper-nationalist, it shares with the current hyper-nationalist moment which is sweeping across the world. He's representing the people who believe in and stand for a unified, strong nation. Hello and welcome to India Tomorrow, a series brought to you by The Conversation's Ant Hill podcast. I'm Annabelle Bly from The Conversation. And I'm Indrajit Roy, lecturer in politics at the University of York. In this episode of India Tomorrow, we're going to be taking a look at India's economy. India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi rode to power in 2014 promising economic changes. It was a key plank of his election campaign. Today, we're going to explore how he has succeeded and failed to transform the Indian economy. We'll also hear how some constituents feel let down by Modi's failure to deliver on some of the major reforms that were promised. So Narendra Modi promised uh, quite a few things when he won the elections uh, in 2014. That's Kunal Sen, director of the United Nations University World Institute for Development Economics Research and professor of development economics at the University of Manchester. The first thing he promised was to create jobs, especially because of the sense there was a bit of a, a problem with jobs being created in the previous years. We'll examine India's job situation a bit later. It's safe to say at the moment, though, that this is a very hot topic when it comes to India's economy. But first, it's worth noting that India's economic growth on the whole is very impressive. According to the IMF, India is the world's fastest growing major economy. Its growth even outpaced China's in 2018. Growth has recovered, perhaps not back to the level that India saw in around the first decade of the 2000s. Around the first day of the 2000s, the economic growth rate in India was around 9% per annum, which was very high, the highest ever that India had actually seen in terms of economic growth. But the economy has grown a lot more under Modi than before he came to power in 2014. So there's been some recovery, and that is certainly something that has happened in the last few years since Modi came to power. Kunal says that another big promise of Modi's was around reforming the Indian state and its ability to deliver public goods such as infrastructure, health and education. On the question of reforming the Indian state, this was a very ambitious promise. And uh, some of this has been achieved. For example, electrification, there has been quite a major drive in rural electrification. In many villages in India, we have now electricity being provided. That wasn't the case before. We also see significant achievements in sanitation, for example, infrastructure provision, roads and so on, uh, particularly rural roads which has happened in the last uh, four or five years or so. So on that, I would say that we have seen some delivery in terms of public goods, but there have been also big challenges. There have been big challenges around reforming the Indian public sector, which really hasn't happened. Maybe that was something that was always very difficult to do. So that's kind of an overview of how the economy has performed under Modi. One of the major policies that he implemented and that has dominated discussion of his time in office was demonetization. Here's Kunal again. What he did was quite dramatic and perhaps not uh, something that people expected, which was that on the 8th of November 2016, the government decided to essentially withdraw 500 rupee notes and 1,000 rupee notes, the two major currency denominations from the money supply, 
and introduce a new 500 rupee note along with a new 2000 rupee note. We didn't have 2000 rupee notes denomination prior to this policy initiative. And that was done at a stroke of a pen. November 8th has entered the annals of Indian history as the day when Prime Minister Narendra Modi announced the demonetization decision to the people. People continue to stand in long queues outside banks and ATMs as they face the woes of the note ban. Even after a month, their worries continue. Overnight, this demonetization policy made 86% of the country's cash worthless. Everyone in India was given 50 days to exchange their old banknotes for the new ones. Indrajit, can you give those listening outside of India an idea of how much 500 rupees is worth? So 500 rupees could get you two decent meals in a place like Delhi. It's slightly more than what a reasonably paid construction worker would be paid per day. So let's say, for instance, wage rates in the sector are fixed at about rupees 350 per day and 500 rupees is slightly more. So construction workers would probably be paid a week's wage in a bunch of 500 rupee notes, if that makes sense. And so these banknotes are commonly used by people across India every day. And demonetization, therefore, really was a dramatic move. So, yeah, demonetization was geared toward delivering Modi's campaign promise to stamp out corruption and in particular to remove black money and counterfeit notes from the Indian economy. Kunal says, however, that this isn't exactly what transpired. Now, what actually was surprising was, now that we have the estimates from the Indian Central Bank, is 99% of those notes have been returned to the banking system, which meant actually there were very few counterfeit notes. So therefore, the rationale that the government had that this was a way to get rid of counterfeit notes tends to really work in practice. Not only did demonetization not achieve its intended outcome, it gave the Indian economy quite a big shock. When you withdraw money like that, in an economy which is quite relied on cash, it can be a huge negative shock to the economy. And particularly in the sectors which are cash intensive, which is obviously the agricultural sector and the, and the informal sector, for those sectors, they faced the brunt of this particular policy initiative because suddenly they were in a situation when their essential day-to-day activities need money, need cash, there wasn't any cash. And that cash came back to the system quite late. It took a long time for the government and the, and the bank's banking system to supply the new notes that were in, came into circulation after November 8th. Kunal says that it's hard to say exactly how much of a shock demonetization had on the economy largely because economists don't have accurate data on the informal sector in India, which is a sector that includes the numerous micro and small-medium enterprises and roughly comprises at least 80% of India's workforce. The estimates on the loss in GDP is around 1.5% of GDP, which is quite a bit. And particularly given that that loss seems to have been concentrated in the informal sector, the agriculture sector, where most of the poor are, that would mean that not only did we see a big loss in GDP, but we particularly saw a big loss in incomes of the working poor. But, Kunal told us, despite hurting the economy, demonetization was not altogether unpopular with people he spoke to as part of his fieldwork. Many people felt that Modi did a very brave thing, a very bold thing, 
And many people felt that, okay, we suffered. And this is my own interviews with lots of poor villagers in different parts of Eastern India. When I was talking to them a few couple of months after this particular demonetization happened, their argument to me was, well, okay, you know, we, we lost. We lost some income, some ways to maintain our livelihoods. But we think that the rich person in our village suffered more. And we feel that's actually good, that that person suffered more than I did. And I, therefore, I feel that this policy, much as I think I got hurt from this particular policy, I think I supported. The perception that was there was that, yes, we suffered, but perhaps this, this particular policy was needed for the national interest and for the very important objective of trying to curb black money and to control corruption. And because we think that this particular policy is going to particularly affect those who are corrupt, and those who have lots of money that they gain from illicit uh, means, we actually think the policy is a good thing. Kunal was quick to point out, however, that this is what people were saying in the immediate aftermath of the demonetization policy. And once the longer-term effect of it began to kick in, people may have gone on to change their minds. So, for example, there was elections in Uttar Pradesh not very long after the demonetization initiative, where the BGP governed pretty well. But in the subsequent uh, by-elections that we saw in both in Uttar Pradesh and other states in India, the BJP government didn't do so well. So it could well be that the initial perception was fairly positive, but as things turned out for those who are were affected by this policy in a negative way, their views might have changed over the course of a year or so. The reason demonetization caused an economic slowdown is because India is a cash-intensive economy. Lots of people don't have bank accounts, and lots of workers will get paid in cash. Jens Lerke, reader in development studies at the School of Oriental and African Studies, explains how demonetization affected all these people. It meant a huge cash crunch, because, of course, there weren't enough new currency to go around. So any sector or any people relying on cash had a problem. And that meant small businesses, any cash-in-hand jobs, so construction, street vendors, people working in brick kilns and so on, couldn't get paid. So small businesses suffered and so did people in low-end jobs. Jens was also in India doing fieldwork in villages just after the demonetization policy was introduced and then again 18 months later. I work mainly in villages what I saw there was that many of the low-caste Dalit construction workers that normally would be working in Delhi, Mumbai, the big cities, were back home because there was simply no work for them in the towns any longer. Jens also points to the lack of accurate data, but says it's clear that demonetization, along with another Modi policy, the goods and services tax that was introduced in July 2017, had negative effects on a number of businesses. But we know that this, together with what came the year after, namely the goods and services tax, which is VAT that was introduced, which means that you pay the VAT as a small business, but then you get it refunded afterwards, led to even more of an economic crunch on small businesses. Altogether, those two initiatives are estimated to have cost three to four million jobs. Some organizations claim that demonetization led to a continued loss of job of around 1.5 million. But these are tricky figures. Together, there's no doubt that both of them led to a significant job loss. Jobs. 
the lack of them, has been one of the major disappointments of the Modi government. One of his key promises in 2014 was to create millions of jobs for young people and reverse what he called decades of jobless growth. Here's economist Kunal Sen again. In fact, anything, it seems that Indian unemployment rates in India have increased in the last few years. The most recent uh, estimate we have, which has been leaked from the National Statistical Survey Organization, is that India has the highest unemployment rate ever in its history uh, since independence. Obviously, since we do not have access to actual report, we can't be sure about this information. But the general sense is that we haven't seen the kind of jobs growth that was promised by Modi when he came to power in 2014. The Modi government has been accused of withholding jobs data in the run-up to the election because of how bad the official figures are. But the latest employment survey, which was approved by India's National Statistics Commission, was actually leaked to the Indian newspaper The Business Standard in late January, and it showed unemployment was at a record high of 6.1%. By a lot of standards, 6.1% is not a bad unemployment rate. But for India, it's very significant, according to Jens Lerke, because there isn't strong welfare provision in the country. And the unemployment rate was just 2.2% in the 2011-2012 to financial year. Now, unemployment is uncommon in a country such as India because poor people have to work. So people being without jobs, to some extent, is uh, people that can afford not to work. Educated people that have a family background where they can that they can live off for a while. But what we have seen here is jobs that have disappeared also within the agricultural sector and low end uh, of manufacturing sector. So it does appear as if poor people are also losing their jobs here. In fact, for the first time ever, we are seeing a fall in employment over a year in the Indian economy. I mean, there's a huge population growth and the issue is normally whether job growth can keep up with the population growth. But India has, in the word of, of uh, Manmohan Singh, the ex-Prime Minister, gone from job-less growth to job-loss growth. And that is a problem. For that, we haven't got official data, but data compiled by a reputable non-government uh, research institute argues that employment has fallen 11 million jobs in the last year. The leaked jobs data shows that the unemployment rate is much higher for people under 30, something we're going to hear more about in our next episode, which is focused on India's huge population of young people. It goes to show how India's economic growth is not benefiting everyone. Now, all the blame for this cannot be laid at Modi's feet. There are deep-rooted issues with the Indian economy which predate his tenure. But, Yen says that demonetization and the goods and services tax have not helped because they hurt so many businesses. More generally speaking, rising inequality is a big issue. Jens points to research which shows how India's impressive economic growth has not benefited everyone. Oxfam produces wonderful Oxfam inequality reports every year. Their view is that it's only the top 10% of the population that really has benefited from that growth. Poverty has decreased in India, but proportionally it is the top part of society that benefits from this. And things are getting worse. 
So the situation today is that if you take the top 1% of the population, they own more than half of all the wealth. And if you take uh, the top nine billionaires, their wealth is equivalent to that of the bottom 50% of the population. So a very, very tiny elite that owns the bulk of the wealth. A lot of this inequality falls along caste and regional lines, with poverty rates much higher among the so-called lower castes, the ex-untouchables or Dalits, and the scheduled tribes, who are also referred to as Adivasis. There are certain sectors where the groups that are discriminated against, the, the Dalits and the Adivasis, will work, and that is brick kilns, where you have appalling conditions. It is construction, where you work very long hours and it's very hard work. It is sanitation work, anything to do with human waste. And it is also low-end factory jobs. If you are from a slightly better background, you are more likely to also have better education and you are more likely to have certificates that will mean you can gain access to proper industrial work. And if you are from higher caste, you may end up in better jobs. So there's a clear hierarchy in the kind of jobs you, you get. Jens says that this relationship between caste and inequality is incredibly stark. Low caste people earn just only a tiny bit more than half of what high caste people do. They earn 56% of what high caste people do. That means that the caste-based earnings gap is actually worse than the gender-based earnings gap. Women earn less than men, but low caste people earn even less. The scheduled tribes, or Adivasis, make up a large pool of India's migrant workforce who move to wherever there are work opportunities. They end up in the worst jobs across sectors. We've seen that. We have, together with my colleague Alpa Shah, we have done a major study of work at the bottom of the, of the hierarchy in the modern sector. And it's clear that wherever you go in India, you will find Adivasis right at the bottom as migrant laborers. They will not speak the local language. They will not have access to the local social services, such as subsidized food. They will not have any political say because local politicians do not care about the migrant laborers. So they can be treated more harshly than the local can. Actually, a lot of migrant workers may not be able to vote in the upcoming elections because, you know, you can only vote where you're registered. And many will be registered in their hometowns or villages and it's too far and too expensive for them to travel back to vote. So I know you've been working on a research project about India's migrant workers as well, Indrajit. What have you found? How have they fared in recent years? So we've spoken to lots of people from Bihar state in India's east who moved to other parts of the country looking for better opportunities and what they would consider dignified work, you know, what they call ijjat ka kaam. A lot of what they find, however, is precarious work. And many people end up moving back to their villages where much of the work is in agriculture. But here too, there are problems. Farmers make up a significant proportion of India's population. So when India got freedom 70 years ago, it was almost 50 to 60% of the gross domestic product was the contribution of agriculture. Nitya Rao is a professor of gender and development at the University of East Anglia, and she's an expert in India's agricultural sector. Now it's about 15%, 10 to 15%. It has come down, so there is a transition there with development. However, 50 to 60% of the population of India 
is still rural and still partly dependent on agriculture. So a lot of people are partly dependent because family members leave farming to try and find other jobs, some in cities, as we heard before, others in what is becoming a very diverse rural economy. So that means they will still have some kind of backup within farming, at least 50 to 60 percent of the population, even though some member of the household may be diversifying into other occupations. In the last couple of years, there have been a number of protests involving tens of thousands of farmers marching on the capital and other major cities. Rukma Bai and her family have been struggling to get food on the table. Three years ago, her husband took his own life. One of the biggest issues in this election season is farmers' distress. And to highlight their plight, over a lakh farmers have landed in the national capital. Farmers from 10 states, including Maharashtra, Rajasthan, Madhya Pradesh, Karnataka and Kerala, have begun a 10-day protest to highlight issues facing them. India's agricultural crisis predates Modi. But Nitya says that farmers have been especially frustrated because in 2014, Modi promised to implement a number of reforms that had been recommended by the National Farmers Commission, a group that was set up in 2004 to identify the reforms necessary to alleviate the suffering of farmers. So over the last decade or so, actually, the agrarian crisis has been building up because of both these factors, climate variability, which is, of course, beyond the control of the government, but also the lack of certainty about prices. Nietzsche points out that farmers' fortunes are dependent on both the climate and the market. While they might not be able to control the climate, the government can help farmers when it comes to the market. They can do a lot to alleviate the suffering of farmers, such as guaranteeing certain prices for crops, or compensating farmers when harvests are bad and waiving the big loans that they have to pay for seeds and fertiliser. The protest started escalating in 2017 over the summer when in the North Indian state of Madhya Pradesh, they had a very good harvest of pulses, which is a high-value uh, crop, and it was not procured by the government at minimum prices. So farmers, which required a lot of investment for growing pulses, they had to literally leave a lot of the pulses on their fields because it was a loss even to spend extra money for transportation to take it to the markets since they were getting a lower price, price below their cost of input. And thereafter, there was a series of such crops specific in different parts of India. So there was tomato harvest in Uttar Pradesh state. And finally, last year in Maharashtra in November, there was a very big protest of about 10,000 farmers who came to the city of Mumbai from all parts of the state protesting for uh, three things, really. One is a minimum support price. Second thing was drought compensation because it had been a drought. So they wanted compensation payments for drought. And the third thing was that they had all taken loans for inputs and they wanted a waiver of these loans. These protests have attracted a lot of attention, not least because of the visceral imagery that farmers have used to reflect the struggles they face. I have seen also some protests where farmers actually from where I am, from the state of Tamil Nadu, when they went to Delhi, they were, I think, wearing like skulls and so on to symbolize that, you know, a lot of people were dying and they were almost like dead people. So I think there was a lot of symbolism around death. 
So there is definitely anger toward the Modi government for failing to deliver on the reforms that were promised. But we'll have to see how this anger from farmers plays out in the 2019 national elections. As with other sections of Indian society that we've heard about in this series so far, farmers are a diverse group. Religion, caste, class and gender will all influence how farmers feel about the incumbent government and what kind of future they want. Before voting began in April, many thought that the issue of Kashmir and the recent flare-up of tensions with Pakistan, about which we heard in episode 3, might dominate the political debate. But actually, attentions are turning back to the economy, how it's performed and what it's done for different groups, such as farmers and young people. Yes, there are actually a whopping 84 million first-time voters in this election. And these young people are the focus of our next episode. Unlike the same generation 25 years ago, that set of young people are very well aware of events in other parts of the world, which are streamed to them via their mobile phones or on the internet. They are increasingly in secondary school, including young women. And in school, they're learning to obviously dream big. Do subscribe to the Ant Hill podcast if you haven't already, so you don't miss out on that. That's in part six of India Tomorrow. You can read more of the Conversation's coverage of India by academics from around the world on theconversation.com or follow us on social media. If you've got any questions relating to what we've been discussing in this series, please do get in touch via email on podcast at theconversation.com or on Twitter at anthillpod. We'll put these to a panel of academics we've got lined up to discuss the election results at the end of May. And if you're looking for a transcript of this episode and other episodes in this series, it will also be available soon on theconversation.com. Thank you to all the academics who spoke to us for this episode and to the journalism department at City University for letting us use their studios. The Ant Hill is produced by Gemma Ware and me, Annabelle Bly. Sound by Alex Portfelix. And lastly, an extra big thanks to my co-host, Indrajit Roy. Thanks, Annabelle. See you next week. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.